The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Our approach to tackling coronavirus is to prepare for the worst and work for the best. You need a totally different style of leadership. It's not enough to have a plan. You need to be testing, testing, testing. Britain and the EU, do they want to be seen as locking horns on an issue such as a no-deal Brexit when the economy is going to be suffering and people's lives are going to be facing so much disruption? Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Now, the main news today in terms of the virus here in the UK is that the government is planning to survey 20,000 households in a bid to track the spread. The data, they say, will help scientists understand the rate of infection and how many people may have actually developed antibodies. But the Conservative MP Stephen Crabb told Bloomberg earlier that the survey can't replace the need for mass virus testing. From what I'm seeing in my own constituency, it's not clear to me who is actually running the national testing strategy. In the absence of a vaccine or a cure, then social distancing and large-scale testing and tracing are the main tools for combating coronavirus. We need that testing and tasting tracing strategy to really come into force to give us any chance of exiting these restrictions that we're under. And then the first human trials of vaccine testing starts today. uh, President of the Academy of Medical Sciences, Professor Sir Robert Leckler, says the team at Oxford have worked extremely quickly. They've moved very fast to uh, stage one. They have these uh, vaccines ready to go. They're moving now into the clinical trials. And I think there's a reasonable chance that these will prove effective. If so, we'll know that within a few months, and then it'll be the challenge of scale And that was Professor Sir Robert Lethler. Well, joining us now, very pleased to say, is Richard Graham, Conservative MP for Gloucester. Uh, Richard, welcome to the programme. Thanks for being with us. Um, if I may, let me first uh, perhaps get your reaction to your colleague, your Conservative colleague, Stephen Crabb, and his suggestion that In a way, what is needed, what he isn't seeing, is a nationwide testing strategy going forward. I think the strategy is there in terms of uh, a clear goal to scale up, to get to the capacity of 100,000 tests a day. And there seems to be quite a lot of optimism uh, amongst the professionals that we will be there. I think we're at just over 40,000 at the moment. But I do think that there is an issue about delivering the tests to individuals on the ground. And this is largely a logistical thing to bring it alive with an anecdote. I had a carer contact my office yesterday saying she very much wanted to be tested, but she couldn't get to the place where the tests take place because she doesn't have a car and there aren't many buses running. So it's it's about the logistics of it happening that I think is going to be as much of a challenge as the scaling up. And what about contact tracing, which seems to be what the government is moving on to now? Why the change, given that only last month we're being told that this wasn't appropriate for Britain? I think the key thing now is that there's more confidence that 
uh, an app will be able to provide the technology through which they could trace contact so that as soon as someone has tested positive, they can trace who else that individual has been in contact with and therefore monitor them, make sure that those people are aware and all the rest of it. Um, uh, we don't know yet exactly how well this, this app is going to work, um, but I do think that gradually being able to discover who's got it and who they've been in contact with is the best way of us trying to understand how it spreads. All this sounds like playing catch-up, and I appreciate these things develop as they go along, but isn't, isn't Keir Starmer's point from yesterday's parliamentary questions, uh, President Prime Minister's questions, where he said that the government had been incredibly slow on, on, on slow on testing, slow on getting equipment, slow on monitoring, slow on reacting. I mean, he does have a point, doesn't he? Well, I think if you're the leader of Her Majesty's opposition, your duty is to oppose. And, of course, he's going to wrap that in sugar-coating by saying that he will be supporting the government when it's right to do so. But if you follow the, the themes through from the beginning of this, first of all, everybody said we couldn't possibly cope because we didn't have enough beds. Now we know we've got 10,000 beds that actually aren't being used. Then they said we couldn't possibly have enough ventilators. And I know in our own local NHS, they've got five times the number of ventilators that they had three weeks ago and they're using a fifth of them, so we have got enough ventilators. Then they said there wasn't enough PPE, and the rules for PPE kept changing because nobody could agree exactly what was needed by whom where. They've now reached that agreement, and although there are shortages of PPE, we do need more gowns, for example. Actually, hospitals have been able to keep going, and I hadn't heard from any of the NHS trusts here who I'm in touch with regularly that they've got a shortage. So you then move on to carers, and what about care homes? And have we got the right equipment for the care homes? So you have to make sure that they get included in the national logistical supply chains. That's happening. Then they said, well, you're not testing enough people. That's now happening, and we're, and we're testing the carers at care homes as well. So what I think I'm trying to say is that in any war, there will be new problems that can be identified all the time. And the question is do you actually manage to resolve them as you go along? And broadly, I actually think that is what we've been able to do. The NHS has been protected. We haven't been overwhelmed. In fact, the NHS is encouraging people with non-virus problems to get in touch and go and see them because they're worried that there'll be a stock-up of those issues later. So although I think Keir Sturmer's points are absolutely right for him to make as leader of the opposition, I actually think, as objectively as I can but the government is doing a pretty good job. The issue, if there is one, and, and of course there are, is really more about logistics than anything else. I've got to challenge you on a couple of those points, though. PPE, you're seeing uh, hospitals and, and other people make them out of, of, of everyday equipment. The actual stuff isn't there. In care homes, we've got Chris Whitty, uh, the, the chief scientific advisor, uh, or medical officer, saying that the mortality rate is going to be very high. So I, I, I don't think it's quite fair, though, is it, to say that these are, are sort of just bumps in the road in, in terms of the bigger problem? Well, I can only talk... Um in specifics about the situation here in Gloucestershire and Gloucester. And we have a weekly conference call with the heads of the four NHS trusts. And uh, they have all said last week that actually they have enough PPE. I'm in touch with the man who runs the Gloucestershire Care Home Providers Association. 
and he said the same thing. So there will be individual situations where suddenly there's a shortage of something. And the question is, can that be resolved through the national supply chains or actually a local trust? local care homes able, if you like, to top it up through their own resourcefulness and the ability of local manufacturers and local agents to provide more. And I think that's what we've seen here. We've seen some generous donations, um, both of supplies and by individuals of funding. Um, so we have been able to, if you like, fill the gaps. And I think one of the things that will come out of this is this question of, does centralised control of supply chains when you've got whatever it is, some sort of 30,000 care homes across the country. Is that really feasible, or is it better to have a strong local system, strong local supply chains? I think that will be one of the big issues for discussion later. Now, Richard, let me pick you up on something that was a big issue this week, as you know, which was to do with the EU's PPE procurement scheme. Now, it seems to me there are two answers to what happened. One is that the government, uh, the people involved, were incompetent because emails went to the wrong address, or what the civil servant in charge said, though he did correct himself afterwards, that it was a political decision. Which do you think it was? Well, I mean, as a former diplomat, um, my instinct on the cock-up or conspiracy question is normally always cock-up. Um, I think Simon MacDonald was making a wider point, but I haven't spoken to him about it, that, of course, it was a political decision by us to withdraw from the EU, and this is not the sort of moment where you would expect a government that's doing that to suddenly opt in to a sort of EU procurement plan but he did withdraw it pretty quickly because I'm sure that there was no evidence that somebody made a political decision not to get involved in this. So I'm not saying that either of those things are completely wrong or completely right, but I think they've been conflated. And my, my own view is that if the EU procurement scheme really does work, and everything that I've read so far tells me that actually they haven't procured any yet, then it would be good and sensible if we're part of it. But if we're able to procure our own needs ourselves, and we know that stuff is coming and arriving the whole time, then I don't really think it's quite as big an issue as some people are making it out to be. I Trying to muddle up Brexit with how we deal COVID-19 seems to me to be slightly missing the point. All right, I've got, got to ask you about PMQs yesterday, obviously the first one with a partly virtual element. How did you feel it went? Do you think it works in terms of holding the government to account, which has got to be the key function of any sort of PMQs, right? Definitely. And uh, you know, wearing another hat as chairman of the Westminster Foundation for Democracy, we operate in about 33 different countries. Um, I, I am very clear that a potential casualty of this pandemic is democracy, i.e. governments across the world putting in place emergency legislation, using that for a wider agenda, not being held to account properly, abusing powers, holding on to them for longer than they need to and all the rest of it. That is, I think, a serious threat to those of us who believe that democracy and power to the people through the ballot box really does matter. So, yes, accountability, absolutely critical. I thought yesterday's uh, PMQ and the, the Welsh questions before and the health statement afterwards, which were the three that I tuned into, I thought they passed my sort of basic test, which is, one, does the technology work? And everybody appeared on the screen at the right time. Two, 
Um, are the questions searching and probing? Is the government being put on the spot on behalf of the people? And yes, I thought they were. I thought they were much better questions on the whole, just to tease you all slightly, than some of the media questions at the daily press conference. <laughs> and then thirdly, you know, did I learn something from it? Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Have a look at some of the other stories that are making news in the world of politics. We start with the intensive care nurse who was one of those singled out for praise by Boris Johnson. She says she wasn't phased by looking after him, revealing it was just another day at the office. Jenny McGee spoke to TVNZ in her first interview since the Prime Minister was released from hospital. We take it very seriously who comes into intensive care. These patients who come into us, it's a very scary thing for them. So we don't take it lightly um, and he absolutely need to be there. And we have from the Northern Ireland Secretary who says that Boris Johnson is continuing to recover from COVID-19 and will be back at work soon. Meanwhile, face masks, yes or no? Well, the official advice could be about to change. According to The Sun, the government's top scientific advisers have concluded that Britain should cover their faces in crowded areas to help slow the spread of the virus. They've now issued their guidance to ministers who will consider whether to change the official advice to the public in the days ahead. The experts say coverings could help to stop asymptomatic people, those who are infected but don't show any symptoms, from passing on the disease. And then more bleak reading, the number of people out of work in the UK is set to surge fivefold. And the longer the lockdown persists, the more difficult it will be to get people back to their jobs. That's according to the National Institute of Economic and Social Research. The group sees the effective unemployment rate, which includes those who've been furloughed, rising to around 20% from its current level of 3.9%. Danny Blanchflower, one of the paper's authors and a former Bank of England policymaker, says what is coming looks horrendous. And if you want to rend us, what about pay? The IFS, mm. Institute of Fiscal Studies, says key workers during the current virus outbreak earn significantly less than other employees. A third of key workers, they say, and 71% in the food sector, earn less than £10 per hour. Overall, they earn £12.26. That's 8% less than employees in other occupations. The gap, they say, has been widening, with key workers in areas such as education and law enforcement subject to almost a decade of public sector wage restraint. Mm, yeah, I'd be very curious to see whether the government follows through after this and we do see a shift from that trend that we've had over the last 10 years or so. Uh, but anyway, let's move it on. Yesterday, the government had its first real test in the new semi-virtual parliament. Prime Minister's questions, but not as we know it, of course. Barely 50 MPs in the chamber and the rest joining via what was sometimes a dodgy internet line. It was also Dominic Raab's, uh, the, the foreign secretary, standing in for Boris Johnson and the first outing for Keir Starmer as Labour leader. Incidentally, it was also Dominic Raab's first outing. So newbies are both of them at the dispatch box. But does this all work? Can the government and the parliament work accountably in this way? Joining us now to discuss that is Bronwyn Maddox. She's the director of the Institute for Government, a leading independent think tank. Uh, so Bronwyn, let, let, let's start there. What did you make of PNQs yesterday? Did it work for you? Yeah, not bad. I mean, a few tiny glitches and, you know, sometimes you lost the top of an MP's head uh, uh, and sometimes they're too close to the microphone and so on, but uh, really not bad. 
The question is what you lose by this. I mean, it did the important thing of telling people Parliament is back and Parliament is, is out to hold the government to account. And the new leader of the opposition, Keir Starmer, I think got off to quite a good start listing, if you like, the main failings he felt the government uh, was making. But um, you do lose something from the cut and thrust uh, of the chamber, and then you lose things um, outside the chamber, um, while scrutiny in select committees and stuff still can go on. Um, there was really a question of whether it it's happens with as much force as when Parliament is meeting physically, and whether it can be seen to work as well as when Parliament is meeting physically. But you asked me what I thought. I thought not bad. Yeah, I mean, let me pick up on that wider point that you're making there, because that's one I wanted to amplify. Um, that It's not obviously PMQs is the weekly uh, bun fight in a way, and many people think it isn't actually necessarily the best representation of democracy. But the wider issues, the select committees, the meetings in lobbies, the parliamentary activity that normally goes on, that clearly cannot go on as normal. How big a loss is that? Well, the select committees, again, can do some of their work virtually, um, and they have been doing that. Um, and they've uh, they, they, they've been putting quite a lot of tough questions to the government. So I think that bit, while it lacks the drama and inevitably the sort of force of people meeting in person with a minister or a senior civil servant right in front of them, the questions do get asked and recorded. I guess part of my concern is um, about the vigour of challenging some of the emergency powers that the government has. Uh, just, for example, just rolling over the, the, the lockdown. Now, there's a lot of public support for that at the moment. But when some of the economic things you, you were talking about begin to kick in, the real job losses and so on, the pressure is going to rise. And I think you want much more debate and open debate about those emergency powers and about the lockdown. And then there is the kind of challenge of legislation itself, um, how that gets scrutinised. And it's something that the House of Commons has not always been... Uh, terrific at. Sometimes it's the House of Lords that has really picked up the burden of detailed scrutiny of legislation. And I'm, I'm worried about some of those things that are less visible than the great gladiatorial clash, as you put it, of, of the Prime Minister's question. Um, but some of the things that really matter for Parliament doing its job. Well, yeah, well, on that, do you think that we're going to get more ambitious with the sort of legislation that gets looked at? I'm looking at the calendar for next week. You've got stuff like the finance bill, the domestic abuse bill, all uncontentious stuff that's unlikely to go to a division. Um, do, do you think that the virtual setup is ready if we need to have a vote? I think it could be. It's one of the things that they're talking about, whether to move to digital voting. And I think that could be quite an exciting innovation if they do go that route. Because even when the coronavirus wave has um, passed over uh, eventually and, and, and countries have got to grips with it, it, this would enable MPs to think very differently about their jobs. For example, to spend more time in their constituencies, um, if that was their, their choice, um, rather than being locked into the Westminster schedule and having to be physically present. Now, it's something that the House of Commons has, has resisted. Uh, saying it's important for MPs to be there physically to vote. But I think it could open up um, really interesting innovations uh, if they'd go to that. They're not quite at that point, though, yet, of, of digital voting. Um, uh, but they are of, of digital debating of the legislation, if you like. 
Let's uh, move it wider, though, uh, Bromley, because you've obviously got the way Parliament works, the machinations of that. But what about government itself? What about cabinet government? Because, I mean, we've had lots of uniques. One unique, really, is having a prime minister who isn't functioning as prime minister, although to some extent he's still in charge, and no clear uh, sign, really, of of a definite deputisation, though Dominic Raab is standing in. And there's certainly been stories about uh, a lot of infighting inside the cabinet, internal squabbles, uh, and therefore no one really taking responsibility. I mean, that's a problem, isn't it? Um, We do have a system of government where the Prime Minister is uh, the front and the lead advocate and um, and not only resolves those disputes in cabinet, but makes the case to uh, to the country for whatever the government is proposing to do. And inevitably it matters if, if the Prime Minister isn't quite there. I wouldn't quite say it's unique. Churchill's biographers have been eloquent in kind of coming out of the woodwork to remind us of all the times when Churchill was perhaps not quite uh, functioning. And, uh, and others, uh, another... Uh, Anthony well. Eden, I but, think, was another one in the background. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but um, in, in recent history, certainly, and it, it is a loss, but I think the loss is, is as much of explaining to the country the different choices and the government's thinking... Um, as, um, as as the actual planning. Um, there are inevitably going to be different voices around the cabinet table. That's almost the point of it. But the prime minister then has to unify those and say, look, we're going in this direction, not that direction. So it, it is a loss. Um, I think the greater problem, though, is, is, not, is, is trying to work out, if you like, what to do when there are no easy answers and answers partial answers are coming very slowly from the examples of other countries, uh, if you like. And it's they've perhaps, in my view, lent a bit too hard on saying we're following the science, the science is giving us all the answers, when what the science really gives you is options. Um, it spells out the nature of those options, but you, you've really got some quite tough choices in there which are political in the best sense of the word. They can only be taken by elected politicians on behalf of the country. And the government does, I think, need to do a bit more about saying, look, we recognise those choices and these are the choices we think we should make. And what about when all this is over? It seems odd to think at this stage, but at some point we're going to be back to relative normal. What aspects of the conditions that we're operating under now do you think could be retained? I'm looking for some positives here, something from the way that parliament or government operates that that, that could be a learning opportunity for, for going ahead. I think there will be. Um, I think the Parliament, having been thrown forward <laughs> hundreds of years um, into yeah. um, a more digital way of operating, I think that is refreshing. And it, it forces Parliament to confront things like, uh, you know, should MPs have this brutal schedule, um, particularly MPs who are not involved in committees who really want to devote time to their constituencies, couldn't they have a more flexible way of, of working and so on? So I think there will be... Um, points there. Um, I think there will be quite a hard look at some of the structures of government, um, of the central planning, but also the NHS itself, while people are coming out to clap its workers, absolutely rightly, for the risk and the um, effort uh, that, that, that they're, they're putting in. The fact is that it's also shining quite a hard light on whether the NHS as a structure, a huge organisation, its own internal planning and distribution particularly after years of budget squeezes and cuts in, in, in uh, care for elderly people and so on, whether all that is working. And so I think there will be some messages coming out of that. 
and then we may well end up with just a better testing regime for this virus, but perhaps for all kinds of other things. Because I think, well, pandemic planning has been at the top of the government's planning for a long time. It's shown that we lack some things. I don't mean as specific as ventilators or um, things specific to coronavirus, but really a network of being able to get the information to make decisions. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.